0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC.
2: There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that.
1: couple highlights, or lowlights depending on your perspective, of week one of the Hollywood Writers' Strike. Ticket lines all across L.A. and New York. Writers engaged in a full-on media campaign to press their case. Strike-related shutdowns of shows like Stranger Things and Hacks. Studios suspending writer deals. Although Disney sent a scary lawyer letter to its showrunners saying they're required to continue working on shows as producers even if the Writers' Guild finds them. The Guild disagrees. And for some reason, CNN keeps letting the striking writers come on to trash David Zosloff, CEO of the Parrot Company, who recently got a $250 million pay package and is about to host a big party at the Cannes Film Festival while his writers are complaining about falling out of the middle class. So no, this thing is not ending anytime soon. Tara Cole, the entertainment lawyer, told the New York Times this morning, any hope that this would be fast has faded. I hate to say it, but it's going to be a while. I agree. And depending on what the Directors Guild and SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild, do in the next couple weeks, we could be looking at the fall or even the winter for a resolution here. Two sides are just so far apart on the key issues, but we got a little clarity from both sides this week on exactly how far apart and the stuff that they care most about. So lots of issues to discuss. We've got Lucas Shaw, our normal Monday guy in here. Today, it's the five biggest narratives after week one of the writer's strike. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome, Lucas.
0: Happy one-week anniversary of the writer's strike. Good to be here, Matt. Have you made your your preliminary venture to the picket lines?
1: I have not, actually. I, I My morning walk goes right by the Fox studio, so I could see across the street. I think I saw Jim Brooks on the picket line, and I took a couple photos, but uh, I have not interviewed any writers there. Have you gone out there?
0: I've sent a couple of people on my on my team there. I personally uh, have thought.
1: Okay. Well,
0: uh, it seems
1: like they're having fun. Maybe question mark. Like they're at least
0: seem to be in good spirits. Yeah. I mean, the signs are are excellent. You're you're <laughs> soliciting the, the requests for the best ones. <laughs> it's going to be a tough contest, honestly.
1: I'm getting so many. I'm doing a, a contest in my newsletter about to to see what is the best writer strike picket sign. And the submissions I'm getting are pretty strong. A lot of them have Ted Sarandos and David Zasloff in the names. They seem to be the emerging villains of this strike, the CEOs of Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery.
0: Yeah, well, look, Zas gets paid an an obscene amount of money. He also spent most of last year cutting and firing and changing the name of HBO and all those things that people don't really appreciate. And then, you know, Netflix has seen, what, as the the symbol for why we are here?
1: Right. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And we'll get into that. So I want to talk about the narratives of the first week of the strike because there's a lot going on, a lot of questions, a lot of misinformation bouncing around town. Uh, The first one I want to get into is basically the media war here because the writers have engaged in a pretty effective, I think, social media campaign, regular media campaign, they're out there. They're talking to whoever will listen. And I wonder, do you think this is effective? Do you think this matters at all? Because I have some thoughts on this.
0: I think it matters a little bit, but not a lot. I don't, you know, I don't think the studios were going into this expecting to be portrayed as the good guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They don't want both sides coverage here
0: you know, they've gotten crushed in the press for, you know, their treatment of data and for some of these issues in the past already. So I don't know that them getting kind of killed in the media is going to make it any more likely that they change their negotiating stance. The only thing that could turn the tide is if
1: there is some kind of meaningful grassroots, you know, cancel Netflix movement, where all of a sudden, you've got Netflix really taking a financial hit here because people are canceling. I mean, people canceled Netflix over that Cuties scandal where the conservative media decided that Netflix was a purveyor of child porn because they had a poster for that documentary Cuties that went over the line. Not a documentary. Oh, feature, sorry. But that was a real problem for Netflix where people were canceling because this narrative emerged that Netflix was a proprietor of child porn because of this one thing. That was effective. I don't know that the writers have been able to galvanize any support for this hashtag cancel Netflix movement that they talked about last week at their meeting. But if that becomes a thing, then maybe so. Or maybe if there's other protests or other ways that they can get support from the general public here to actually make a difference. Otherwise, it's just noise.
0: You know, canceling Netflix, that's one of the members of the AMPTP, right? So if you're going after one or two of the big ones. If you mount this whole campaign to get people to cancel Netflix or to get people to cancel Disney Plus or to cancel Max, does that affect the broader group, right? Does Netflix's pain make any of the others more likely to do a deal because Netflix is pushing for it?
1: Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Adam Conover, the negotiator for the WGA was on the show last week, and he was talking about how the general public doesn't like these companies and they're looking for reasons to not Subscribe or cancel. I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't think people have a general opinion about a particular service. They like their shows or they don't like their shows. They watch it because their kids like it or they don't watch it because their kids don't like it. I just, I don't think people think that way. And if the content continues,
0: then the subscribers will continue. Adam Conver is a really smart guy, and your interview with him is good. All the press hits I see with him, are, he's he's clearly smart. This notion that people don't like these services is very much something that you would only believe because you live in Los Angeles and New York. If you look right. at the, the general numbers for the popularity of these services, they're very high. It's like saying people don't like Amazon. It's like, really? Right. Maybe some people think it's like kind of an evil company, but most people are pretty happy to be able to buy things for not a lot and get it delivered to your house. Yeah. Netflix has a great brand On all the
1: studies that you know, Netflix branding is fantastic. And I don't think a writer's strike has hit that brand, at least not yet. All right. So I want to go on to the second narrative from this past week that has been pretty significant. I think it keeps coming up in the media. You've written about it. I've written about it. We keep seeing stories. That is the rich CEO narrative. The fact that all of these not all, but most of these executives that are running these media companies are making outrageous amounts of money. Ted Sarandos at Netflix, $50 million. David Zasloff at Warner Discovery, he once got a $250 million pay package. Iger is getting, what did he get for two months at Disney
0: last year? I think he got $15 million last year and 45 the year before that, something like yeah,
1: that. Yeah, $15 million bucks for two months of work. Not bad. So that's another question. Does this matter? Does it matter that these the outsized pay packages of these executives are coming at a time when the writers are literally saying we
0: are falling out of the middle class here? Again, to your point about all that really matters, and this is the negotiation, I don't know that it affects that, but I do think it is the single most compelling case against these companies, right? Because you look at this and all these companies are firing staff. They're talking about how they need to cut costs. They're ta- you know, they, they need to satisfy Wall Street because their streaming services aren't making money. Their stocks are going in the toilet and they're getting paid huge sums of money. And it would, it seems so obvious to me, like, I just don't understand if you're running one of these companies, why you wouldn't say, you know what, let's take a bunch of this stock you're about to give me because most of the pay is in stock and let's give it to some of our employees that we're about to fire or let's give it to some of these writers. I know it's not going to happen, but it's what they yeah, should do. Yeah, wh-
1: what planet are you living on? What executive <laughs> has said, you know, no, no, no,
0: I'm good. I'm good. Let's give it to the people. I'm just telling you what I think they should do, not what they will do. <laughs> it would be, how, how how great a move would it be for Iger coming back? You know, he's, he's engendered some ill will because they're firing people. He's, you know, basically gutted the Disney Plus team, all this stuff. And he could say, you know what? I've made a lot of money in my life. I don't need it this year. Let's find someone else to give this money to. It would, be, it would be a baller move. I'm just saying the first person to do it would get such good press out of it.
1: Yeah, and then two days later after the press subsides, they'd be like, wait, what did I just do? What, how am I going to pay for that third yacht? Like, <laughs> I just don't see that happening. I mean, David Zaslav has been overpaid his entire career. This guy's been one of the highest paid media executives, even when he was running a relatively small company, Discovery. So that's part of the spoils. These guys make the tough decisions. And to his credit, I think we're seeing right now that Zasloff was early on something that the entire business is doing right now, which is cutting costs, pulling back on the streaming service, saying, you know, this is going to be a profitable business. This is not going to be growth at any cost. And those are unpopular decisions. But ultimately, at least right now, it looks like it's the smarter decision because we look at the earnings. This past two weeks, the Warner Discovery stock did not tank when they revealed their earnings. The Paramount Global stock did tank when they revealed their earnings. So, you know, at least he's uh, the argument is that a lot of this comp is in stock and that they do better when the company does better.
0: Which is not really, which is not really true. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) They, 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 do, they do well regardless because of yeah. the way that it's all structured with how they vest and all that. So yeah, I think it's the best talking point against the studios. I don't know that it influences them. To your point, these guys are kind of shameless. I mean, I've been rereading Disney War just because I'm sort of like curious. And I just got to the point where there was one year where Michael Eisner made $550 million. And this was in the 90s. What? Yeah. How? He was the highest paid CEO in America multiple times in the 90s. Okay, there's highest paid though, and then there's half a billion dollars in the '90s. Like, how did that happen? Was it just because he had stock that, they, yeah? You know, they it was mostly the it was it was mostly stock. It was mostly stock and incentive based compensation. It's outrageous. Well, yeah, and honestly,
1: that's something where ultimately at the bargaining table, the economics of the business are what is discussed. And when you are Carol Lombardini and you're sitting down at the table pleading poverty and how these companies can't make money. It's not a great fact for you when the other side can pull out a handy chart that shows the CEO comp and how it's increased
0: over the past 10 years while the average writer's salary has not. There's really no defense of it. It does feel like All these numbers have gone up, right? Like the amount of money that's being spent on these shows, the amount of money being spent on programming in general, the number of shows released, all these things, and the writer's comp has not gone with it. It's the most compelling argument on the side of the writers.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling,
1: which I think is something that surprised me. Maybe it didn't surprise you. But the third narrative we've seen is this debate over the future of AI, artificial intelligence, and its use in screenwriting. When I saw the initial reveal, when the writers said that they proposed a limit on how AI can be used in screenwriting, and the studio said that was a non-starter they did not even want to discuss that. They would prefer to simply have a chat with the writers as the technology progresses. That really surprised me because to me, at least initially, it said, okay, that's an easy give. Nobody knows what this technology is going to be. And in three years, come back and debate what it's going to be. A lot of people pushed back when I said that and were coming at me saying, you know what? You, These sorry, studios, you, thought
0: it was, you thought it was an easy give for the studios or the writers? For the studios say, okay, fine, we'll discuss
1: this in three years. We'll put a three-year cap on AI. And that's not what the studios want, according to many people who have reached out to me. They want the freedom to use this now and to figure out how to enhance scripts and, if you believe the writers, to figure out how to use AI and cut out the writers in the process. I don't know that they are there yet, but it seems like there is movement at the studios to utilize this technology in a way to cut costs. And the writers
0: are really digging in on this one. A couple things. One, studios are already using artificial intelligence. They're just not using it to replace writers. They're using it for post-production and pre-production, visual effects, that sort of thing. And that use is is only going to increase. My sense is that the studios, they recognize how much has changed with AI in the last 6 months. Right. And don't want to be prohibited from doing anything because they none of these people have any idea what's going to happen in the next 3 years. And so I agree with you it feels like one of those where a remedy should be pretty easy where you just sort of reached some agreement about giving writers credit and making sure you don't have a whole thing written by AI that sort of thing but maybe you can tinker with it. Well AI there's also other ways. remedies.
1: I mean it's pretty clear that artificially created Words are not copyrightable. And this is a business built on copyright. So, why would you want a script to be written by a machine and not copyrighted?
0: I have to say, and look, maybe I need to talk to some people who can tell me I'm wrong. I find it highly implausible that studios are going to use artificial intelligence to write an entire script. I just don't believe it.
1: No, I think right now you're right. I don't think, and first of all, the stuff we've seen that has been churned out has been pretty bad. Now, maybe we're talking, direct to Netflix or direct to video movies or, you know, the lower end of production where you could say, you know, we need a Christmas movie starring Lindsay Lohan. Give it to chat GPT and they spit something out and then you go to Budapest and shoot it in a week and a half. Maybe they could do that. But a real theatrical quality movie, I don't think they are there yet, but they're looking down the pike and say, okay, maybe at some point, We could do this, or we could hire a writer for a week of work on a freelance basis, then enhance it with computers and
0: shoot it then. It's definitely a tool that will be used in the process. And I think there are certain kind of relatively low skill or to your point, sort of not as um, not as artistic, whatever you want to use it, ideas that you can use AI to, to do, but Even so, I think there'll be a writer in that process and the guild just has to ensure that that writer gets some of the credit because to your point, you can't give a computer a copyright.
1: If I had to predict, I think this is an area where the studios will ultimately give.
0: Do you think that's the case now or no? I go back and forth. I could see it going, I honestly could see it going either way. I could see it being one where the writers say, if you give us enough on these other issues, then we'll we'll give in on AI for the time being. But I think you're right. The studio's, I think there's got there should be a a pretty easy compromise on this one. I just don't I I don't see how with something so uncertain uh, and where, where nobody really knows anything, you can't just come to a deal. And these other issues are way more fundamental.
1: Yeah. Speaking of fundamental issues, the fourth narrative of the week has been this whole debate over what showrunners can or can't or should or shouldn't be doing now that most of the writing has stopped, all of the writing has stopped, according to the Guild, and these showrunners still have shows in production where studios like Disney are saying, not only do we want you to come and keep working on your show, you're actually required to stay working on your show in your capacity as a producer. And there's a big debate over this because they started sending these lawyer letters And the guild had a meeting and said, no, you're not required to do these duties. You actually shouldn't be doing any of this stuff because writing doesn't end at the script phase. It continues throughout production, even into the editing room. And you shouldn't, you know, there's these A through H rules that uh, when you are striking, you're not supposed to perform any of these duties, things like cutting or making tweaks in the edit room or things like that. And there's no clear answer on whether the, Provisions of the collective bargaining agreement make these writers perform their producing duties.
0: Where do you where do you see this going? It feels like every writer producer is going to sort of make the decision based on their own whims or their own feelings about it. Well, that's what's happening
1: now. I mean, we have some of these shows that are continuing. Others are shut down. You know, hacks stranger things the writers have said basically we do not stop writing when we start shooting so we can't separate our duties and we're shutting this down but i
0: believe that in most of those scenarios the studios knew that was going to happen i don't think that i don't think that it was just a shock right that on I know, and at least, at least in in one of the ones that you referenced, like that was known before this happened, that the production was not going to continue. I mean, it's comedies, comedies in particular. I talked to TV executives this weekend. And
1: they're like, yeah, we just, you know, most comedies are going to shut down because that's how comedy is made. they you know, they see it playing out. And they suggest alternative lines. They, you know, cut and they move
0: stuff around. Like that's what comedy is. So it's tougher. If the guild is going to prevail or get more of its way, it needs to convince as many of those people as possible that they can't make anything. Yeah. Because you need a united front, and you need to get some of these studios worried that, hey, or these networks worried, hey, this show that we thought we might have because we had the scripts in in time. You know, these these companies spent a bunch of the first quarter, third of this year trying to make sure that they had scripts done by May 1st so that they could enter production. But if you have a producer on one of those saying, I won't do my job. And they thought they were going to get it. That's where they start to really feel the pain. And
1: on the bigger shows, Maya Rudolph's loot is not going to hurt Apple if it shuts down production. But Stranger Things, Netflix relies on Stranger Things to juice their subs when that comes out. So if that's delayed a couple quarters, that's a big delay for Netflix.
0: Yeah. And so it's really a question of how effectively I think the Guild can convince all of its members to not participate in any work beyond any of the other work even even including the you know the producing and uh, and post and all of that
1: yeah and I don't think the studios are going to sue because that's what these lawyer letters are essentially threatening they're saying you are required to perform your duties as a producer on these shows even though you are a striking writer and if they just say you know what middle finger not going to do it the remedy is to sue and I don't think they're going to do that
0: I view it less as they're going to sue and more as it's a pretext for if this strike is still going in two months or three months or four months and we can exercise the force majeure clauses in your contract to kill your overall deal. The fact that you were not doing this thing that you were, at least they say, contractually obligated to do makes it even easier for us. Like, you're not going to be able to come back at us. Producer X, we wanted to get rid of anyways. And oh, by the way, you didn't want to work on your show. Goodbye.
1: I guess, although force majeure is pretty clear. They can get rid of people after, usually it's 90 days, sometimes 60 days, depends on the contract. And they could just say, I'm sorry, like we're killing everybody here. We're not there yet. The deals that have been cut this past week have been suspended. So people that aren't working, their overalls or their production deals have been suspended for the most part by these studios.
0: Well, and the weird thing in a lot of those cases, I mean, I guess not weird, but they're still, whether it's at, at Sony or Universal or some of the the, the studios that have already taken it because not everyone's done it yet, they are still paying all of the other employ or a lot of the other employees at the company. They're just not paying the principal. Right, yeah. I read last night that Netflix hasn't cut the overalls yet. And
1: that's interesting to me. I wonder why they are hesitant there or
0: if they're just trying to be the good guys here for a little bit. So the first studio to move on this was Sony. Mm -hmm. They're the only one that doesn't have a streaming service. They are a pure studio. And so they probably have like a little more, you know, they're not, it's harder to paint them as the enemy, I think. Right. You know, Universal, which I think was second, at least when in our reporting, they were the second we heard about, like they have this pretty much the smallest streaming service other than Sony, whereas Netflix, which is the biggest. Yeah, they probably want to wait to the end. Look, I don't know if it's coordinated, but but, you know, let let the other people take a little bit of flack up first, knowing that you're going to do it eventually. Yeah. And a lot of the coverage has focused on Netflix as the bad guy here. You know,
1: Netflix created the model that ultimately caused everybody to freak out and go on strike. And so I think they may feel like they can keep a little bit of goodwill by holding on a little bit more. Um, I don't know for how long, but uh, that's the thing. all right. The fifth narrative, I think that has been a real big debate this past week has been this notion of mandatory staffing. And that is something that the studio side has really been emphasizing when they put out their list of, you know, their version of where the talks broke down. The writers want a level of mandatory staffing on shows, meaning you have to hire a certain amount of writers for a writer's room on a show. And the studios say that is not only not really feasible, but it's not, it's antithetical to the creative process. If a showrunner only needs a couple of writers, why should the studios be required to essentially pay writers to do nothing? The Guild has a very different perspective on this. I mean, Chris Kaiser told the New York Times this morning. He's the uh, head of the negotiating committee. He said, we don't need the companies protecting us from our own creativity. What we need is protection from them essentially eliminating the job of the writer. So this whole mandatory staffing mini room debate seems like it's going to be a big, big bone of contention.
0: Yeah. Coming into the strike, most of the folks on the writer's side said that, that mini rooms were a Uh, you know, one of the two or three biggest issues that they had because they were doing all of this work ahead of production. It meant that they didn't get to go on set. It meant that there were fewer people working on a project. It meant that they generally didn't get paid as much.
1: And they see it as a path. They see it as the first step towards essentially turning these writing jobs into gig jobs, into things where you're contracted for days or a week or two, and then the show is handed off to producers who can execute and the writers are essentially cut out.
0: Right. It makes sense to try to adjust the, the mini room concept. I haven't really met anyone other than a writer who thinks that mandatory staffing is going to happen, though. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that, like, that includes, you know, all the agents, managers, lawyers, like representatives who want who are sort of on the side of talent don't seem to think that mandatory minimum staffing is realistic.
1: I think the studios are pushing it because they see it as a wedge issue, something that could divide the writers. You know, there are people like David Kelly, people like Taylor Sheridan. A lot of these A-list writers don't have rooms or they have very small rooms. Mike White's another one they've cited. But I don't think it's going to be a wedge issue. I just don't know when push comes to shove and they're working out a deal, whether having a mandatory 10 person writers room is going to be something that the hill that they die on
0: to that end like okay we're 3 to 4 months down the line what are the 3 or 4 things that the the writers will not lose on
1: obviously the money that's you know goes back decades they always want higher residuals they always want higher minimums so those are the first two i think expanding the residual rates for streaming that just seems like a no-brainer and something that should have happened a long time ago where you're not beholden to subscriber numbers in the U.S. for how, much, how many residuals you get. I, mean, I think the writers and the directors as well are really seeing decreases in the amount of residuals they get from the streaming content. So bringing those up to par with the residuals that they are getting from the linear world, I think whatever formula they can work out there, that will be the highest priority.
0: I'm with you on all of them. Notably, though, you did not say AI or minimum staffing. I just don't. I don't know. I think AI is a big deal for the writers because
1: they see this as something akin to the internet back in 2007 when they were fighting over what the internet was going to become. so. But I, I see there, there's a, a compromise to be made there. The studios agree that they can't do anything without the Writers Guild sign-off or they agree to like some specific, like it doesn't have to be binary, where either it's a free for all
0: on AI, or they can't use it at all. Like there could be some kind of a compromise to work out there. I I think there's a compromise on both of those issues. It's clear that writers need more protection from both AI and from studios, kind of boxing them out of the process. It's not clear that there's any, and, and the studios thus far don't seem to have really given much of a counterproposal, but it's also not clear that exactly what the writers are asking for is, is going to be feasible. So there's, there's yeah. somewhere in the middle. All right, Lucas, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back with the call sheet.
1: Greg, are you following the latest in the Yellowstone saga?
2: It's been really fun because I don't care about the show at all. So I just <laughs> want chaos to ensue.
1: Pretty chaotic. So the latest is they are still not booked with Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner is still holding out on whether he's going to come back for the final episodes of Yellowstone. They announced this past week that Yellowstone TV's most popular show is going to end in November, pending the writer's strike and whether they can actually shoot the episodes. And then a new Yellowstone, the one that is reportedly going to star Matthew McConaughey, I heard he's very close to a deal, that one will start in December. But Yellowstone is ending in November. With or without
2: Kevin Costner. So, who wins in this face off between showrunner and star? Who will win in terms of who gets to decide what happens with Dutton? Will that be a compromise most likely? Probably. I mean... They're gonna have to side with Costner. If he refuses to come back if they kill Dutton by slipping on an ice cube, he's not gonna come back. I know. It could be amazing. He could be
1: like disemboweled William Wallace style like, you know, stretched and his genitals burned off or something like that. It's full heart. I doubt they're gonna do that. I think they will probably come to a compromise on how it will happen. The funny thing, like, this happens on shows when actors who they don't Like get written off. It happened on Grey's Anatomy where Patrick Dempsey was killed in a car crash. It's happened a bunch of times, but they will probably work out some kind of compromise.
2: This is why the internet era stinks. I don't like that. If I was a fan of Yellowstone, I would not want to read that basically the entire plot of the final season relies on how much Costner wants to show up to set. I know, because you know this happened
1: all the time in sure. the past. I'm and sure we with James didn't know Gandolfini about
2: it. and The Sopranos, I'm sure all of these shows had so much drama going on behind the scenes, and we had no idea, and it was blissful and ignorant yeah. and great. Some
1: shows still are able to keep it under wraps. Like, with, remember with The Good Wife, where they filmed that entire final season where Juliana Margulies and her co-star like weren't speaking, and they had to film their scenes in different locations. You think okay. I watched The Good Wife? I, I, I doubt it sure. you did. I did not either, but I was aware of that controversy. So, yeah, we'll see how it comes up. But I do think Costner will be in these final episodes. He gets $1.2 million an episode for these shows. So he's going to come back.
2: How many episodes will he not be in? That should be your
1: prediction. A few. I think there will be episodes he's not in, and they will sort of try to wean the fans off of him a little bit. And Mm -hmm. then McConaughey will come in for the next one. They'll pick and choose a few characters from McConaughey should
2: kill Costner in the final episode. (laughs) Show up and just, like, take over the land and just, you know, fully just conquer. Steal his identity, Don Draper style. Yeah,
1: (laughs) that would be amazing. Uh, All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer, Greg Horbeck. I want to thank our editor, Justin Lopez. We will see you later this week.